Good morning, great men and women of God. I am glad that you're here with us today. I want to share a story with you. The story is about a young man named Judah. Judah grew up as the youngest in a family of brothers and sisters. Uh, He lived about 2,000 years ago in a small Roman outpost called Nazareth. Judah was a good Jewish boy. He grew up learning the Torah, observing customs and feasts. He went to the synagogue. He would play with his friends. Sometimes he might even slip in and watch his father in the workshop. Pretty much a typical first century Jewish family except for his oldest brother, Jesus. What was it like having a brother who was teaching the adults in the temple before he even had facial hair? What was it like having a brother who never bullied you, never struck you in anger, never dunked your head in a toilet, never defied mom and dad, never snuck out at night? For some of you that have some trauma related to older brothers, just let that sink in for a minute. What would that be like? What was it like seeing how mom and dad would look at him? Now, they loved all their kids, but there was something about the oldest kid. And they'd look at him, and and Judah watched as, as he got older how mom and dad began to defer to him. What was it like trying to understand when your dad talked about the birds and the bees and how babies were made except for your brother Jesus? His birds and bees story involved virgins and angels and shepherds and stars. What was it like that one day when he finally moved out and began traveling around the region telling everyone he was God? What did he think about his brother? He watched him grow up. He ate meals with him. He played with him. And then one day his brother leaves home and goes out and starts to tell people this story. Well, one eyewitness actually tells us what Judah and his brothers thought about Jesus Christ. John tells us in John 7, 5, even his own brothers did not believe him. In fact, this was a reason that some people didn't believe in Jesus. They were like, look, we know his brother, even his brothers, his family, they don't believe in him. Not only did his brothers not believe in him, but another uh, writer actually tells us this detail. He says, when his family heard about this, Jesus' family, they went to take charge of him, for they said what? He's out of his mind. And yet, 40 years later, Judah seems to have changed his tune. In a letter he wrote to a group of people that were following his brother, Judah starts off and says this, Judah, slave of Jesus the Messiah. Now, this is pretty interesting. He, he says his name, hi, I'm Judah, and then he, what goes in the next spot? Well, he's going to put down the thing that's going to most identify him. It's going to be the truest thing about him. He could have said so many things here. He could have said influential church leader, or he could have said, you know, father of these kids, or he could have said I, this person. Instead, into the slot, after his name, he says, the most important thing you need to know about me is that I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, He's God in the flesh, and He gets to call the shots in my life. I'm His slave, He's my master. Now, the question is, how do you go from thinking that your older brother is mentally ill to becoming to a point where you believe He is the master of your life? Sometimes it takes a resurrection. Now, I feel a little kinship with Judah Um, My brother also died at 33. 
And as time goes on, it's easier and easier for me to forget all the bad things he did, all the ways he was mean to me, and I just start to remember all the good things. It's easier and easier just to put him up on a pedestal and only remember the good. So, you know, you could read this with Judah and think, well, maybe 40 years later, he was just remembering the best about his brother. Except I never thought my brother was God. I think he thought he was sometimes, but I knew better. But I will tell you this, if I saw my brother rise from the dead, I might be willing to change my theology. By the way, this is one of the most compelling reasons for me personally why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because his own family came to believe that he was God. His brothers went on to lead this movement called uh, the way or following Christ. Uh, many of them risked their lives. We understand that many of them even gave their lives. They died as martyrs. You don't die for a lie. These guys came to the belief that they were willing to die for the fact that their brother was God in the flesh. And this is how Judah lived. Now, why do I introduce you to Judah? Well, this April, we are reading some letters written by people wrestling with how do you live in the aftermath of the resurrection? And it's been fun to go back and, and read some letters that were written a few decades or so after the resurrection and see how people are still trying to apply this. And, and we got to see how that looks in some personal relationships. And we got to see how people were trying to reorient their grids of truth so that Jesus was at the center of it. And we're going to wrap up this series today with Judah's letter. Now, we call Judah's letter by its English version Jude. But Judah would have been known as Judas or Jude, Judah back then. I'm going to call him Judah to kind of honor his Jewish heritage this. And I want you to understand that the truth grid that Judah is going to have today is this. Jesus gets to call the shots. That's what he believed. And so he's going to look at everything in life through that. Is Jesus calling the shots or not? So I want you to turn with me to Jude. That's going to be the second to last book in the New Testament. You're going to have the book of Revelation, and then you're going to back it up, and you're going to go to Jude. And if you have a Bible with you, open it up. We're going to read through it. I'm going to be reading through the New Testament for everyone version, but you can read through uh, whatever version you'd like. People always ask me, what's the best version of the Bible? The answer is whichever one you will read. That is the best version of the Bible. So we're going to read the NTE today. Verse 1, Judah. Judah, slave of Jesus the Messiah, brother of James. Oh yeah, James. He also wrote a letter that's very popular. James also came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. To those who are called, the people whom God loves and whom Jesus the Messiah keeps safe, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And then he starts to say in verse 3 why he was writing. Beloved, I was doing my best to write to you about the rescue in which we share but Judas says, I wanted to write this letter about the resurrection. I wanted to tell more people about the rescue that we've had, how Jesus Christ by his death and his resurrection has freed us up and given us this liberty and this new message and a new hope and a future, all this great stuff. That's what I wanted to talk about. But unfortunately, I have to write a different letter. Oh, what's going on? Verse 3 tells us, and I wanted to put it up here so you could see it. He said, so instead of writing to you about the rescue, I found it necessary to write to you to urge you to struggle hard for the faith, which was once and for all given to God's people. He's saying struggle hard for the faith. What is the faith? It's this whole revelation of God, this whole story of God that we've been given that all points to one thing, one person, one brother, Jesus Christ. 
In fact, Jesus even said that one time. He, he said to a bunch of religious leaders, you're always studying the scriptures to learn about God, but don't you understand that every single one of them points to me? I'm the point. That's the faith. And it's a faith that Jude reminds us is not something that we cooked up. It's not something that a bunch of guys got in our room and said, hmm, let's make up a great story. Let's create this conspiracy. Instead, Jude says, no, we were once and for all given this. It always reminds me of that old song by Rich Mullins where he says, I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. And I love that line. I, I didn't make this truth up. It's making me. And this is what Jude would be. Jude would say, this truth, this is why I'm a slave to this man. So keep struggling for the faith that we've been given, the truth about a man who is God and gets to call the shots. Okay, so what's, what's going on here, though? Why, why does he feel the need to change gears and write a completely different message about struggling for the truth? Because there's a problem. Verse 4. Some people have sneaked in among you, it seems, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. So Jude says, I'm actually going to call some people to the carpet here. And he calls them ungodly people. What are they doing? I want you to see this. Some people have snuck up in this group of people that are, are God's people, but there's some outsiders that have come in and they're doing this. They're transforming God's grace into licentiousness and denying the one and only master, our Lord Jesus the Messiah. Some people have sneaked in. Jude started off, Judah started off by saying, hey, I'm a slave to Jesus. These are people who are coming in saying, that's not important. You don't need to be a slave to Jesus. These are people who thought that the grace that Jesus brought was a license to do whatever you wanted to do, to call the shots yourself. What you did didn't really matter because while Jesus was a great example, while he was a, a masterful uh, role model, while he was an incredible teacher, but he wasn't our one and only master. He wasn't our Lord. He's definitely not the Messiah. So what they were doing is they were saying, look, we're, they were teaching people that they could make choices without consequences. And this is why the identity of Christ is always such a big deal. And this is why when you read these documents that were written in the years after the resurrection, why they would always spend so much time making sure that they were clear who Jesus was. Because if Jesus is not God, what right does he have over our lives? But if he is God, what does that mean for us? That's always the question. This is what's going to be so crucial next Sunday. Jonathan's going to be starting a series in Matthew called Angry Jesus. And we're looking at some of the times that Jesus got angry. Why did he get angry? What did he get angry at? What did he not get angry at? Now, if Jesus is just a man, then that's not really a very good series. I mean, who cares? It's just that this, you know, everyone has their own little uh, things that bother them. But if Christ is God, then what he gets angry at says something to us. And what he doesn't get angry at says something to us. And you begin to ask the question, what right does he have to talk to me about what I get angry at? So this became personal for me when I was in grad school. And when I was in grad school, I was focusing a lot on studying uh, theology and making sure I really understood. I was getting really grounded in this faith that was once and for all given. And, and it, it helped me to really come to grips with, I do believe in a resurrection. I do believe that when Christ died on the cross, he, he freed me from the burden of rules I could never live up to. And as a guy who loves rules and thinks that rules are great and awesome, as much as I love them, I can never complete them. And I came to really believe God loved me. Now, 
when you really believe that God loves you, it should propel us to follow him more. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm sometimes reluctant to give Christ shot-calling ability in my life is I'm doubtful, you know, is he really have my best in mind? Is he going to ask me to do something I don't want him to? Like the scariest prayer ever is, do whatever you want, Lord. No, I would never pray that. Do whatever you want within these boundaries. That's much more. But we're nervous about trusting him. So sadly, I started to go down a different path. I began to cross some lines. And I began to think, you know, it doesn't really matter what I do because God's going to love me and forgive me because that's his job. He has to do it. And instead of struggling for the faith in a Jesus who called the shots in my life, I found myself beginning to struggle against it. And these choices begin to have consequences in my life. I started to feel hollowed out. I was losing my joy and my passion, my spirit. I reached out to a spiritual leader in my life for help. And it's one of those moments where um, I just went to, went to talk to him and he's like, what's going on? I was like, I don't know. Just want to see what's going on with you. And what I needed most was this guy to ask me, tell me what's really going on. And I did. And he began to remind me of this truth, that the resurrection frees me to follow. See, the resurrection, this rescue, Jude says, I wanted to talk about the rescue, the rescue. The resurrection rescued us from the burden of a law we could never keep. It rescued us from the idols that identify us. They res rescued us from the chains of the worst of our nature, but it was never intended to free me from following Jesus. This is why Jude could talk about the rescue and a few verses later talk about being a slave. Resurrection frees me to follow. It was a process of getting back on track with that and saying, look, is Jesus going to be in charge of all my life or just the parts I give to him? And, and what's interesting is that the struggle I had was not new. You probably have experienced some of that as well. It's hard to decide how much to give up. And in fact, Judah grew up hearing stories of his people, the Jewish people, these followers of God, who time and time again would stop following God. They'd start rebelling against him. Time and time again, and you can read the stories and the stories that Judah would have heard growing up in the synagogue and growing up from his parents that people would say, for whatever reason, God's not in charge anymore. And starting in verse 5, he starts to read through some examples. Now, what I want to do is I'm going to, I'm going to kind of read these verses and just make a few comments on them, but there's a lot in here that's pretty amazing and somewhat hard to believe. But I'm not going to have time to get into all that. What I want you to notice is what Jude is doing. Jude is listing us a number of examples of times people have rebelled against God and how that worked out for them. Verse 5, I want to remind you, he says, even though you know it all well, when the Lord once and for all delivered his people out of the land of Egypt, he subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So God freed these people. He gave them rescue. You're no longer slaves. Just follow me now. And, and people say, well, wait, if we're no longer slaves, we don't want to follow you either. Verse 6, in the same way, when some of the angels did not keep to their rightful place of authority, but abandoned their own home, he kept them under conditions of darkness and an eternal chains to await the judgment of the great day. He's saying, even angels, who you would think you're so close to God, why would you ever leave? You, they, even some angels said, we don't think God has the right to call shots in our life anymore. Verse 7, in a similar fashion, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities round about, which had lived in gross immorality and lusted after unnatural flesh, are set before us as a pattern, as an example, 
undergoing the punishment of endless fire. Sometimes he says even entire cities, entire cultures turn their back on God, and they say, you don't have the right to tell us what to do anymore. And he brings it back home in verse 8. He says, however, these people, these people that I'm writing about in this letter are behaving in the same way. They are dreaming their way into defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and cursing the glorious ones. I have no idea who the glorious ones are. But that's... But then he says this, even Michael the archangel, even the top angel, apparently they rank each other, Michael's number one, when disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not presume to lay against him a charge of blasphemy, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Now that's weird. That's a weird story. And we don't know where he got this story. Judah, where did you get this story from? We know that it must have happened. I mean, he's in this. He's written it in this book. But we don't know what's going on here. Now, I don't think the point of this is we ought to be polite to the devil. I don't think that's the point he's making. I think the point he's making is this. Hey, even Michael, who was the top angel in charge of all the angels, came to a point where he realized, I don't have the authority to speak to the devil this way. That's God's job. So I'm not going to do that. Even Michael, he says, this angel with all this authority said, God has authority that I do not have, and I'm going to let him call the shots. Verse 10, these people, however, these people I'm talking about, they curse what they don't know. They're like dumb animals. There are some things they understand instinctively, but it's these very things that destroy them. And then he says a curse on them. He's very upset. And then he just gives a couple more examples. They go off in the way of Cain, the guy who killed his brother. They give themselves over for money into Balaam's deceitful ways, a guy who broke the rules to get rich. Uh, They are destroyed in Korah's rebellion, a guy who led a rebellion against God's leaders. Now, like I said, there's a lot packed in here, and that'd be something really interesting to dive into and explore. But if we step back for a minute, all of these people that Jude just mentioned have one thing in common. They got to a point where they said, God no longer gets to call the shots in my life. My choices don't have consequences. What does it look like when we begin to say, no, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to let him have authority in my life? Verse 12, Judah says, These are the guys who are polluting your love feast. They share your table without fear while simply looking after their own needs. And listen to this description. They're waterless clouds blown along by the winds. They're fruitless autumn trees, doubly dead and uprooted. They are stormy waves out at sea, splashing up their own shameful ways. They are wandering stars, and the deepest everlasting darkness has been kept for them in particular. Wow. In other words, when we, when we say, hey, I want to follow Christ, but there are areas of my life that I don't want to follow him in, we really began to have little to offer. We're like clouds that promise rain but arrive empty, like trees without fruit, like waves that sink ships, like stars you can't navigate by. And Judah warns that someday, somehow, God will deal with them, that there are consequences for choices. Now, as a parent, I'm always trying to help my kids understand the relationship between choices and consequences. And sometimes when they're little, it's easier. When they get older, it's difficult. Um, I struggle with my wife in this way, that she does not see a connection between the choice to speed and the consequence of being ticketed. And I constantly am praying, Lord, when will there be justice on the earth? Um, There's never a police officer around when she is speeding. It just drives me nuts. But I know, I'm hoping... 
So I'm trying to teach our kids this, and as our kids have gotten older, we're trying to help them see the relationship between choices and consequences. And one thing that happens, I think, is that uh, for teenagers, they want more choices, but they don't always see the consequences that come with that. And so we started making a decision with our 17 and 18-year-old kids uh, over the last year to really free them up and give them much more choices. At the same time, allow them to deal with the consequences. For example, told one of our kids, hey, um, listen, we are going to start reducing the rules in this house. We're down to like three rules. But one of them, one of them that's not a rule is, I'm not going to force you to get up and go to your first class of the day. Apparently, uh, it's, it's hard to wake up in the morning for some people, and he doesn't want to go. Okay. So, Dad, you're not going to make me go? No, I'm not going to make you go. But there are consequences to that. Oh, yeah, yeah, he didn't hear that. So he started kind of sleeping in, and, and that was really great. It was enjoyable. Then he started realizing his grade was dropping in that class. Then I started getting these phone calls from District 11, and I was still b- backing off of this. Finally, one day he came and he, he said, hey, I, I, uh, I need you to call the school and excuse my absence. And I said, oh, I'm not going to do that. Why not? I don't want you to be a waterless cloud, <laughs> which he did not appreciate. But I was like, look, hey, I am respecting you. I am giving you the freedom to make the choice, but at the same time, you can't control the outcome. You can't control the consequence of that choice. And it's rare. I've had like one good parenting moment in my life, and I think this was it, where a light went on. He's like, okay. So then he kind of started contacting his teacher and realized some of this stuff. Now he's still struggling a little bit with getting to class, but he's owning that. He's seeing, okay, I choose this, but there's also a consequence. These guys were teaching, no, you can make choices and there are no consequences. But Judah reminds us that choices have consequences. And when we live like Jesus doesn't have the right to lead us, that's a choice we're free to make. God says, you are free to make that choice. But we may not be free from the consequences. So Judah says, struggle hard for the faith, the faith that Jesus is who he said he was, and he gets to be in charge. Now, what can help us with this? Judah uh, has brought up this issue, and he's going to give us some direction. He's going to give us some help. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But I want to first give you a moment to make this personal. You see, it's easy to read a book like Judah and and go, wow, there's just a bunch of crazy stuff going on. Man, all those people, yeah, they shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have rebelled. And to miss the personal part for us. So I want to give you a moment to reflect with God. I'm going to give you a question to kind of ponder. This is a question that you would ask God. I'll give you a couple moments of just kind of quiet to think about this as Roland's playing. Where in my life am I not allowing Jesus to call the shots? Hey, I want to follow you, Jesus, but this is an area that's kind of, I don't know if I can trust you with it. Let me give you a moment and reflect with that, then we'll come back and see where Judah takes us.
We'll come back to that question uh, in a little bit when we take communion. I was thinking about that question this morning, though, and I realized there's an area like of my life right now where it's difficult for me to let Jesus call the shots, and it has to do with my work. So many of you know that um, I'm about to go on sabbatical. I'll be taking a break for the summer, and it will be a season of not work. And uh, the, the challenge, a challenge I'm facing is how much, um, this is going to sound real weird, how much I don't want Jesus to be in charge of the church. I know that's weird. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a little nervous what he's going to do while I'm gone. That's what I'm saying. Uh, if I'm here, then I know what I want to do, and I know those things, but it's like I'm handing this back over to him like it, like, you know, it was never his all along, but I'm handing this back over to him, and I'm saying, okay, you get to call the shots this summer. I won't be around for these things, and, and that has been very disorienting for me. It's been very, um, I'm realizing I have uh, control issues that I didn't know I had. I think sometimes uh, people who struggle, struggle with being workaholics it's a real struggle to walk away and say, I'm going to take a break. I actually think this is one of the reasons why God built a Sabbath into our weekly rest. It's, it's, it's like we're saying, well, look, Jesus, I, I, if I work for seven days, I'll get seven days worth of work. And God's like, no, I want to teach you something. I want to teach you that if you work six days and you take a day of rest, you'll be more productive. Well, that doesn't make sense. Well, God's math never makes sense. It's one of the reasons I love God. He and I both have different math issues. But what he's saying is that you need to trust me with that seventh day. And it was so important that God made it one of the Ten Commandments. He actually had to make it a commandment for people to take a day off because he knows our human nature and we don't trust him with it. And so imagine that day where it was the Sabbath day and a farmer is like, I'm just standing here and they're my crops and no one's picking them and no one's you know, watering them and no one's doing anything with them and I just have to trust. That's hard. But do we trust that God is good? You know, some of you are here like Judah before the resurrection. You're not sure what you believe about this man, Jesus. You don't, he's a mystery to you. Maybe he's a model of how you're to behave, but he's not really a master. That's okay. It's part of the unfinished journey of faith to wrestle with these truths. And everyone here is wrestling with what it means to have Jesus be in their life. But if we are going to be people like Jonathan talked about, who are sent out to alert everyone everywhere that God reigns. If we're going out there saying, look, I know things are bad, but God is fixing it. He reigns. There's coming a day where he's, he's going to reign completely over cancer and evil and oppression, and the poor will be fixed, uh, uh, delivered, and the, the oppressed will be rescued, and all that stuff. And if we say, yes, we believe in this coming reign of God, but yet we're not willing to let God reign in our lives, then we're like waterless clouds with that message. So part of the way that we tell people that we really believe in this God who rose from the dead is how we let him work and call the shots in our lives. Jude gives us four quick tools to have hearts that follow him. I'm just going to read these verses. Listen to this. But you, beloved ones, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Build. Jesus calls a shot when we build ourselves up in the faith. And like I said, if there's a part of our, our, our lives that aren't sure about some of our faith, we need to shore those things up. Where do you need to build up in the faith? For example, I really believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Somebody asked me this week, hey, did, have, you, have you ever struggled with that? Yes. Have you ever doubted that? Yes. Have you doubted it in the last five years? Yes. 
But this is an area where I felt, you know, I'm a little shaky about that. Let me go back and I want to dive in and I want to shore up that part of my life because it's important to me to really realize, do I believe in a resurrection? If that's a shaky thing for you, maybe it's a shaky thing about who Jesus really was or what he really taught. That's something to dive into and shore up because when you believe that, it makes it easier for us to trust him. Judah says a second thing in verse 20. He says, you pray in the Holy Spirit. Letting Jesus call the shots is not just an act of willpower, it's something we need help for. And so he's saying, look, you're going to have to ask the Spirit for help in this stuff. It's funny, trying to follow Christ apart from asking for God's help is like a form of rebellion. It's basically saying, well, I'll follow you, but I'll do it all by myself. I've had to really be praying that over the last month as getting ready for this sabbatical. Okay, Spirit, I trust you. Where do you need to ask for God's help? Where is it in your life that you said, I'm going to do this on my own. I don't need anyone's help. And now you're realizing that's not working. I need to ask. A third thing he says in verse 21, he says, keep, keep yourself in the love of God. When we forget that the Christ who wants to lead us is the same Christ that loves us, it's hard to trust him. It's hard to give up control. I have to remind myself that Jesus keeps saying to me, look, I love you, Thomas. I love Pulpit Rock. I want what's good for you. Trust me. Where do you doubt that God loves you? Is that a reason maybe why we're not giving up an area to him? And then lastly, he just says this. He says, wait. Verse 21, wait for our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, to show you the mercy which leads to the life of the age to come. And here it is. This isn't it. There's more to come. We believe that Jesus Christ on, just on the other side of this window is at work and there are things happening and maybe we look around our world and we go, well, it doesn't seem like he's doing a very good job of it, but we have hope and faith that God is working towards something, that he does reign over this earth and that he is preparing us and taking us to a life of the age to come. And if I'm going to trust that that is what he's doing then, then I'm going to trust him for what he wants to do now. And over the last few years, this reminder of what God is working for, the restoration of all things, has given me great hope. I feel like God is saying, look, if you can trust me to restore all things tomorrow, will you trust me to restore you today? In a few words, Judah reminds us of the essentials of following Jesus. We build belief, we pray for help, we keep grounded in his love, and we wait for the hope. We build belief, we pray for help, we keep grounded in his love, we wait for the hope. We build belief, we pray for help, we keep grounded in his love, and we wait for hope. But what about people who aren't letting Jesus call the shots? What do we do with those people? I mean, Judah cursed them. Is that what we do? He actually gives us some closing advice in verse 22. He says, you know, with some people who are wavering, you must show mercy. With some, you must rescue, snatching them from the fire. But to others, you will show mercy, but with fear. As I understand what he's saying here, I think he's saying this. To some people, we show them mercy. We reason with them. We listen to them. We say, hey, look, this is what God's word says. We appeal to them. We give them space, and we point them to Christ. To other people, we rescue them. This may mean that we step in in a more serious way. We correct. We confront. We intervene. We pull some people together. I've done this with other people. I've had other people do this with me, but always in the context of a relationship. But to some people... Some situations, we may have to show mercy with fear, meaning we're not the ones to step in. 
Maybe we don't have a relationship with them or maybe we don't have enough experience or maybe what they're struggling with is something that we would get sucked into and we know that for whatever reason, we don't get to be the people that step in and so we have to step back and we say, God, I'm gonna call you to do in this person's life what only you can do because in the end, letting Jesus call the shots means that we have to let him call the shots in other people's lives as well. What do we do? We show mercy. By the way, I know these couple of verses are very difficult to live out, especially when the people are people that you love deeply. Maybe they are a close friend. Maybe they are a spouse or a son or a father. And you wonder, if I just show mercy, is God ever going to step in? I'll give you this. Even Jesus' own brother Judah did not believe in him, and it took him decades before he did, but he did. So build, pray, keep, and wait. Great men and women of God, I want to close with this. Judah ends his letter with a great benediction. It's a beautiful thing. He says, Now to the one who is able to keep you standing upright and to present you before his glory, undefiled and joyful, to the one and only God, our Savior, through Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all the ages, and now, and to all the ages to come. Amen. Just want you to notice something real quick. God is able to keep us standing upright, but that doesn't mean he always will do it. We're all going to fall. We're all going to fail in our following. I am able to prevent the consequences from some of the choices my kids make, but I'm not always going to do that. In fact, I think we all need to fail. I don't think, I think sometimes that's the only way we're going to learn. But when we fall, look what it does say. He is also able to present you before his glory, undefiled and joyful, even when we have turned away from him, even though time and time again there are stories of people, including us, that have said, you know, I'm going to let you call the shots, but not this part of my life. We've gone our own way. We can return to him, and we will find him at the front gate, arms open wide, ring for our finger, robe for our back, fatted calf for our meal, now and for all the ages to come. Amen. That's the point of the table. The table is for people who failed. And we come. So I want to pray for us as we move into this time of communion. I want us to consider where in our lives is God speaking to us right now? Will you, will you pray with me? All of us, Lord, have failed in our following of you. We continue to fail in our following of you. I'm so thankful that you do not fail. This morning, though, we invite you into our lives to look for the areas where you're not calling the shots. Something we're holding on to that we said, no, this is mine. We really want to let go of that, Lord. So we pray to you, Holy Spirit, that you would identify that, begin to speak truth, that we can trust you with that thing. Amen. As we move into communion, I, I want to remind you of that, word, that question that we reflected on earlier. Where in my life am I not allowing Jesus to call the shots? And when you come to the table today, will you bring whatever that is with you? See, when we take the bread and we take the cup, it's a reminder that Jesus has earned the right to reign over us. And we can also trust him because the one who wants to lead us is the one who's already loved us. 
So as you come to the tables today and you take the bread and you take the cup, maybe there's symbolically something that you are leaving there. Jesus, I want you to begin to call the shots in this part of my life. I will trust you. You can trust him. When you are ready, the tables are open.